0: Welcome to TNS, The New School at Commonweal, don't take a collaborative it, don't, don't, don't. learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Dr. Donald Abrams and host Michael Lerner, co-presented with Cancer Choices. Go to cancerchoices.org to follow along with parts of the conversation.
1: Oh, well, my name is Kira Epstein. I am the program coordinator for The New School at Commonweal. And we are very privileged today to welcome integrative oncologist Donald Abrams back to the new school to talk with Michael. And thanks to Laura Pohl and Nancy Hepp and everyone at Cancer Choices for co-presenting this event with us. We do record and produce all of our webinars. We will post them, I'm sure that Cancer Choices will post them on their website. The New School website will have them, and you can also find all of our recordings on the New School's SoundCloud, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify feeds. And thank you all for being with us today, and I think that's it. I'll turn it over to Michael. Thank
2: you, Kira. And uh, Donald Abrams, uh, welcome back to the New School, and welcome as our first keynote a keynote conversationalist for our brand new website, Cancer Choices. Pleasure to be
3: here. Thank you, Michael.
2: Yeah, such a joy. And I'm going to ask uh, Laura Pohl and Nancy Hepp to turn on their cameras so that they can join us in person uh, for a moment. Uh, And I'm going to first introduce you, Donald, and then ask Laura and Nancy to introduce themselves. They'll be supporting our conversation. Donald Abrams, you are a beloved uh, friend of many years. Uh, You uh, have uh, an extraordinary resume. You co-edited the Oxford University Press textbook Integrative Oncology with Andrew Weil. You were named a top cancer doctor in Newsweek in its 2015 special health issue. Uh, Prior to specializing in oncology, you played a pioneering role in the field of HIV, and you've conducted numerous clinical trials investigating complementary therapies in patients with HIV uh, and much, much more. Um, So uh, I'm just so delighted to have you back with us. Uh, We've been friends and colleagues for so many years. I should add, of course, that uh, you worked extensively uh, with the Osher Center and uh, you have been a oncologist at uh, Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital and Trauma Center. I think I've touched the high
3: points. That's pretty much me. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Thank
2: you. And uh, Laura Paul, please introduce yourself.
4: Good morning and good afternoon. It's afternoon where I am in Virginia. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, I am 40 plus years uh, working as an oncology clinical nurse specialist. And over that time, believe it or not, I had been interested in integrative oncology long before it was called that. And in 2016, I was approached by Michael to work on what was then called Beyond Conventional Cancer Therapies. And it's been such a pleasure uh, to work as senior clinical consultant for Cancer Choices as it's evolved over the years.
2: Thank you so much. And Nancy Happ, can introduce yourself?
4: Thank
5: you. I am Nancy Happ, and I am the uh, program manager and the lead researcher for Cancer Choices. And I am delighted beyond words to be doing work that is meaningful and helping people at a deep level and something that i just love it's just a blessing
2: wonderful uh, we we figured that uh nancy uh herself has put ten thousand hours into the cancer choices website and wow. laura and the rest of us have put another ten thousand into it and that doesn't count the almost 40 years of previous work that uh, we've done in the field so along with donald abrams we're we are, let us say we're all veterans of the integrative oncology world. So Donald, you were so kind to be our first keynote conversationalist for the new cancerchoices.org website. And let me start here because our primary goal uh, is to, um, you know, we've, we've thought about how to phrase this, but the easiest phrasing for me is to bring integrative cancer care to everyone who seeks it. Uh, uh, is that, to you, a good formulation of what we're trying to do here?
3: Yeah, I think that uh, you know the website, to me, is a wealth of information and a great resource. As a practicing integrative oncology still uh, at the Osher Center for Integrative Health in San Francisco, my next new patient appointment is in January. 2023. And Mm. it's now July 2022. And my next follow-up for patients that I already see is in April of 2023. And if you have cancer, you know, that's too long a wait for a follow-up appointment. So there just aren't enough people practicing integrative oncology in the world today. We have an open position for another integrative oncology faculty person, as well as a nurse practitioner in integrative oncology. And they're not filled yet. And partly because there just aren't that many people that are trained in this field. Hmm. So making integrative oncology more available to people who want to know about it is critical, in my opinion. And you've done a great job.
2: Donald, thank you so much, and thank you for being one of our advisors to the cancerchoices.org website, Uh, and you've made such an immense contribution to the field. When you see a new patient, um, what are the first questions or observations you make for new patients?
3: Well, it's funny that you ask. So in the old days, I used to start, when I saw people face-to-face, by saying, tell me your story. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't interrupt. Usually a physician waits 17 seconds before interrupting the patient. I would listen to the story. And that immediately establishes the relationship between me and the person I'm seeing, which is really one of the hallmarks of integrative cancer care. It's patient-centered, relationship-based. Unfortunately, we get graded by new patients. And my lowest grade was always doctor knew my history. So now I start out by reviewing the chart and telling the patient, oh, I see that you were diagnosed with blah, 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 And I tell them their story. And then I say, I, I want some idea as to how this impacts their life. So I do try to, you know, get tell me your story in there somehow, you know. But so, you know, one thing that I used to hear when I asked people to tell me your story was. People would weave a story as if stress caused their cancer. I don't think stress in and of itself causes cancer, but stress is not good for people living with cancer or anybody else for that reason. It's adrenaline or epinephrine, which kills lymphocytes, the building block cells of the uh, immune system, and it's cortisol, a steroid hormone, which is an immune suppressant. So decreasing stress is really important since I'm seeing patients in consultation, I'm not their primary oncologist. I tell them cancer is like a weed and other people are taking care of your weed. And it's my job to work with the garden and make your soil as inhospitable as possible to growth and spread of the weed. And people, people like that. And I say, so I'm going to start by looking to see how you fertilize your garden. That is what you eat and what supplements you take. And that's when I launch into my spiel about nutrition and cancer, which is, of course, my passion.
2: And nutrition is so central to this. As you know, our approach, and I know you share it, goes beyond nutrition and cancer to a whole set of healthy habits of living. And our, our basic spiel, if we put it in those words, mm-hmm. is that um, if you uh, eat well, move more, uh, get love and support, sleep well, reduce stress, uh, create a healing environment, and explore what matters now in your life. We call them the seven healing practices. And I'm going to ask Nancy Hep if she can put the healing uh, practices up on the screen for a minute, that makes you, it tends to make you a healthier person living with cancer, right? And becoming a healthier person living with cancer, what that means is that you have better quality of life and better functional status. And what that means in, uh, in oncology trials of new chemotherapies is that you have more resilience for treatment, you have better quality of life, better functional status. And in the trials, the reason why they need to track functional status or quality of life is that it tends to be associated uh, with uh, living longer as well as better quality of life. So when I talk to oncologists about this, it's like, This is not rocket science. You want your patient to be healthier because it enables them to complete their conventional therapies. Uh, And we know from, you know, oodles of research that it's such a powerful indicator that really it does make a difference. Why do you think it's been so hard for uh, oncology to recognize this isn't rocket science getting healthier The science is clear, we cite the science, Uh, makes a difference.
3: Yeah, again, oncologists, because we deal with a very serious illness and we use very complex and potentially toxic drugs, are the most demanding of evidence from randomized placebo-controlled clinical trials, double-blind. You cannot do such a clinical trial with, you know, these seven amazing pillars uh, to demonstrate that that this is actually working. But obviously, as you say, the performance status, what we in oncology call the performance status, how a person is, are they are they functional, fully one hundred percent? are they bedridden? are they almost moribund, that really does predict how a patient is going to respond to our treatment. So you're right that doing all these things improves. The performance status of the person and makes them more likely to be a responder and somebody who's going to not only tolerate but benefit from their cancer treatment. I do want to point out that I love the central hexagon. what is it there? Yeah, uh, well- you know what matters most? You know I, I guess I do that when I the, the last things I ask my patients before I examine them in the old days. What brings you joy? What are your hopes? And where does your strength come from? And I think that is getting to that issue in the center there. And you know, once I was asking a patient this, those three questions and her husband looked at me and said, what is she being interviewed for Miss America? But then I saw a woman at a conference who told me that her husband had died. But when they came to see me and I asked them those three questions, he appreciated that even though he was where he was on his journey, he still had joy, hope, and strength. And she said that really meant a lot to the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's the way I get to that central hexagon. What do we call it? One, two, three, four. Yeah.
2: Yes, no, uh, to what matters now. So, uh, Nancy, I'd like to ask you to, Move to, you know, something in the site that we're really honored to have put up, which is our search therapies. We have over 60 different therapies. And I've asked Nancy, uh, this is the Review of Complementary Therapies, and I've asked Nancy to click on cannabis. And the uh-huh. reason I've asked her to click on cannabis, <laughs> Donald, is that you are I think it's fair to say the leading authority on cannabis and cancer in the United States and the world. What drew you to I mean, it's it's bold enough of you, Donald, to have entered integrative oncology as a field, which is really you've been a pioneer mm-hmm. and to have co-edited the textbook with Andrew Weil. But of all the things that you could have done to court further controversy, Uh, because you did it before (coughs) cannabis was more widely accepted. What drew you to become the lead researcher on cannabis and cancer?
3: Well, it was a little bit of serendipity. In 1992, when I was still more of an AIDS oncologist, uh, a letter was sent to the director of research in the AIDS program at San Francisco General Hospital from Rick Doblin, the president of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And he basically challenged us to do a a study showing that cannabis was useful in patients with HIV, uh, largely because Mary Rathbun, who was a volunteer in our AIDS clinic, had been arrested for baking brownies for our patients. She was known as Brownie Mary. And she was a volunteer of the year for two years running She used to take our patients to x-ray, drop off their prescriptions and bake them brownies. And she got arrested. And after her arrest, Rick Doblin sent this letter and I picked up the gauntlet saying, yeah, OK, I can do that. I went to college in the 60s. So it took me a while, five years, in fact, of fighting the government. But ultimately, in 1997, I got money and marijuana to do a clinical trial to show that cannabis was safe in patients with HIV taking antiviral drugs. And actually, interestingly, that was my segue into integrative medicine because it gave me a strong appreciation of the power of plants as medicine, which then took me to the Telluride Mushroom Festival in Telluride, Colorado, a month after I had done my first ever jury duty and came home and said, I wanna go to law school. But in Telluride, I met Andrew Weil, and he described the two-year online distance learning fellowship you could do with his program in integrative medicine at the University of Arizona. So I said, uh-huh, I don't want to go to law school. I want to do that. And I did change my life. The rest is history. When I finished in 2005, I started my integrative oncology clinical practice. So marijuana changed my life. Uh, and largely, I was driven to it, by the way, because I myself had a partner die of AIDS uh, in 1989, and he never took any of the antiviral drugs uh, during the three years after his AIDS diagnosis, but he used cannabis pretty much every day. And when I got that letter from Rick Doblin suggesting that a study showing the benefits of cannabis in people with HIV/AIDS should come from San Francisco General Brownie Mary's institution, I said, Yeah. Because I remember Mark and his outliving most of the other people in his support groups who did take the the available antivirals at that time and said, maybe there is something about cannabis.
2: Uh, It's such an extraordinary story, Donald. Nancy, I wonder if you could walk us through for a minute the uh, remarkable... Uh, way that we are looking at these things, how people can uh, go to the search therapies function at cancerchoices.org and look at these 60 different uh, substances, uh, more and more of which we have up with these full treatments. So could you describe to us what somebody finds and how we've evaluated uh, these therapies, Uh, cannabis as an example?
5: Yes, so um, with each of our therapy reviews that we have done, we offer layers of information for people because we realize not everybody wants to drink from the fire hose. You might just want a sip. And so we offer an at-a-glance view with just a brief couple of paragraphs or so of information and then we tell you how we rate on seven different aspects. And if you want to see more, that is available. Why? Why does cancer rate or cannabis rate treating? Uh, excuse me. Why does cannabis rate a one for treating cancer? That's because there really isn't that much uh, evidence of its having an effect. However, for managing side effects and promoting wellness there is substantially more evidence of benefit available there. Mm. And we rate all the way down the line. If this isn't enough for you and you say, wait a minute, how do I know that this is modest evidence is, is based on anything? We give full details in the uh, evidence page that we offer. And you can take a look
1: mm.
5: right at the this this our summary of the study, and then you can get to the sun study itself through PubMed or the the uh, journal article.
4: Thank you, Nancy. Uh, earlier on, people asked us to like rate sort of like people do on Amazon, and we didn't think that was fair or um Reasonable thing to do because a conglomerate rating really doesn't tell you the whole story. So that's why we rate on each of those effects of the um, the therapy, as well as it's important to realize that when we don't have, say, all the randomized control trials, but we have folks like Donald who see the value and their clinical experience tells him that a therapy is useful. That it's important for people to know that, hey, this therapy has a lot of support in the uh, clinical community. So that's why we rate on several levels and not just the scientific evidence.
2: Thank you, Laura, very much. Uh, Donald, in some of our private conversations, and I may or may not have this right, it's my memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, my memory is that uh, you are uh, less impressed by uh Separating separating out CBD, for example, than uh, the complete uh, cannabis uh, product. Am, am I correct about that? CBD being used free, uh, frequently for, uh, you know, pain and 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 so forth. Yeah,
3: yeah, that's a that's a, a good question, Michael. Thank you for putting me on the spot here. No. Yeah, I believe that cannabis is the medicine, the plant that mm-hmm. has over four hundred compounds, including. 120 so called cannabinoids, such as delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol, the one that's most psychoactive, and cannabidiol CBD, which is catapulted to the top of the most favored cannabinoid list because it's supposedly not psychoactive. If it has any benefit in clinical trials, it's been shown to decrease anxiety, and many patients like it for sleep. So, something that decreases anxiety and helps people sleep to me seems psychoactive what it doesn't do is get people high and we live in a puritan based judeo-christian society that thinks being high is not a good thing so that's why thc is sort of demonized whereas cbd has catapulted to a 23 billion dollar business in the absence of much evidence that it really does anything thc complexes with the so-called cannabinoid receptor in the brain And that's how it does its work. CBD actually changes the shape of that receptor so that it can't bind THC anymore. So it actually does decrease the psychoactivity of THC, but probably decreases some of the therapeutic benefits as well. So yeah, I'm just uh, putting together a talk for next week, a lecture to a, a pain group. And some of my colleagues had a task force to determine how to treat pain with cannabis-based medicines. And they say, start with five milligrams of CBD and increase to 40 milligrams. And if that doesn't work, try some THC. Well, that to me is like way backwards and five milligrams of CBD, you know, homeopathy is not something I, I really encourage or endorse in my integrative oncology practice, but The clinical trial looking at CBD and anxiety looked at 600 milligrams. So what's five milligrams going to do? That's crazy guidelines that were produced and published. And in fact, I, with a colleague at Harvard, wrote the editorial sort of saying these guidelines are based on what, you know? So, yeah, I, I am not a proponent of CBD, you know, It's in my pet store. It's when I check out at Whole Foods. It's right there, a whole tray full of CBD products. I mean, where did the evidence come from that this does anything? I mean, people do benefit, I guess, but some people actually get dysphoric reactions because it's maybe changing the shape of that receptor. So it can't bind with our own cannabinoids that the body makes all the time to help us modulate our response to pain. And, you know, deal with our moods.
2: Well, this is so fascinating, Donald. And and you know, you're speaking really as as you know one of absolutely the leading authorities in the field. So you're not blowing smoke, let's just put it that way.
3: <laughs> but so, I, I think my I think my views are not widely embraced, obviously, by a $28 billion business in a very short time, right?
2: But I think one of the functions that we've always tried to serve with cancer choices and, you know, in the ever since I published choices and healing from MIT Press, uh, you know, 25 years ago, integrating the best to conventional and complementary therapies. You know, our hallmark has always been to put out the best information we can find without fear or favor. And uh, if it offended Uh, The pharmacology industry, so be it.
3: And
2: we have the CBD industry, and they may be offended. But let me ask you this when it changes the receptors, are those changes irreversible? Do we know?
3: Yeah, no, I don't think so. I think it's just in the presence of the CBD, but I am not a neuropharmacology physiologist or whatever. But I'm happy that when we demonstrated the uh, cannabis website, that we did point out that the evidence that cannabis cures cancer or has any impact on cancer is is weak because that is something that as an integrative oncologist uh, pains me uh, to see patients waiting months to see me treating a potentially curable cancer by taking highly concentrated oils of THC or CBD or the combination. And now their cancer has become metastatic and, and incurable because we really do not have strong evidence that cannabis has activity against cancer. I mean, the best evidence comes from the test tube where Manuel Guzman in Madrid uh, studies the impact of cannabis on metabolism. And the brain is the most metabolically active organ in the body. So they would add cannabis to rat brain that they grew up in culture. And they said, maybe we can do our work faster if we do a brain tumor. So they grew up a rat brain tumor and added the cannabinoids and everything died. They said, Oh, maybe we did something wrong. So they did it again and everything died. They said, well, maybe it's a bad batch of cannabinoids. So they went back to the normal brain and everything lived. And since that time they've demonstrated that when you add the cannabinoids to the brain tumors, that this receptor complexes with the cannabis and the cannabis tells those brain cells to commit suicide. And they've also demonstrated in the culture, in the test tube that cannabis blocks vascular endothelial growth factor, which allows new blood vessels to form to feed a tumor, which is how bevacizumab works, a very expensive pharmaceutical. And they also demonstrated that cannabis blocks the activity of an enzyme called matrix metalloproteinase 2 which allows cancer cells to become invasive and metastasize. So all of that happens in the test tube, but none of it has yet translated into impact on humans.
2: Now well, that's extraordinary. Um, I'm. I'm. I have a note here from our colleague uh, Steve Heilig at San Francisco uh, Medical Society, who's also a senior advisor to Commonwealth, has worked extensively with us and. Uh, Steve says beyond his pioneering contribution to integrative cancer care, Donald has also been a real force in helping give people access to the right to die. Uh, and he said that many of us see as a great contribution to patients, peace of mind and quality of life. And he actually uh, put up a link uh, to a conversation he had with you about that. Oh.
0: You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Dr. Donald Abrams and host Michael Lerner.
2: Could you just say a little about uh, how you came to and what, when you think about your life work, uh, these different areas in which you've pioneered, how important is this focus on uh, enabling people to have the right to die and uh, to have the peace of mind? Uh, That goes with. uh,
3: Yeah, let me just uh, finish my cannabis thought by saying I also agree that it is very useful for symptom management. And I love it for patients because it deals with nausea, vomiting, loss of appetite, pain, depression and insomnia. So when I was a young AIDS doctor in the 80s and 90s, before we had effective therapies, young, previously healthy, very energetic men attractive, contributing to society, were dying. And they saw, by watching their friends go, what lay ahead of them. And they said, you know what, I don't want to do that. And so when it was not legal or anything, uh, I became a person who would write the prescription for the potion, if you will, that would allow patients in their, you know, uh, own way to orchestrate their death and not go through that terrible end of life death. Unfortunately, my own partner that I mentioned had that access, but became demented and wasn't able to use it himself. So, spent his final days in hospice. But gee, going through that AIDS crisis and watching men become so diminished and you know so much pain. At such a young age, demanding that they have access to, you know, some ability to end their life with grace and dignity uh, just made it clear to me that we need to do that. I will say that as an oncologist for 39 years, the number of patients who have asked me for assistance compared to the number of young gay men in the 80s and 90s is, you know, I can count on one hand the cancer patients who, who have asked for that. Whereas, you know, maybe it's because of the difference in demographics that these people were 30 years old and these people are 60 or 70 and are more, you know, willing to undergo that. I I read a wonderful book called a matter of death and life by Irv Yalom and his wife, Marilyn, who was diagnosed at age 86 with multiple myeloma and didn't want to go through treatment. And Irv is a psychiatrist at Stanford who's written many books about psychotherapy as well as many novels. And Marilyn is also in her own right an academician, a historian of French literature and art, I believe. And she asked him to write this book with her. Uh, and they alternate chapters as she's diagnosed and dying and ultimately chooses uh, to end her own life with assistance. And it's a very powerful, very beautiful book, I thought, uh, very poignant.
2: Well, you know, Donald, and I'm so glad our colleague Steve Heilig raised this because this happens to be one of my personal areas of true passion. And I really get the complexity of the issues. And of course, we know that American society, just as it has embraced cannabis and is embracing psychedelics, which we might also talk about, is embracing compassion and dying. So there are these cultural movements that are spreading across the country. I happen to believe I I take honestly a quite radical view of this, uh, that people ought to have the right to die under any circumstances, that they shouldn't be limited to. You know, six months, uh, uh, you know, so I happen to uh, take what is honestly a radical point of view, although there are philosophers who say that the right to die may be one of the best indicators of the true freedom of a civilization. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, we won't go into the depth of those issues. I know uh, that some people interpret their religion as saying it's a sin I know that not only Catholics, but some Buddhists feel very strongly that you shouldn't ever do that. Uh, There are a wide range of very credible views, and it's a very complex question what should be legal. Uh, But my goodness, what courage it took that you were willing to write those prescriptions for people at a time where there was real risk in doing that?
3: Well, you know, we actually wrote an article in the New England Journal of Medicine. At the time, I was also the leader of a group of uh, physicians in the Bay Area and nine Bay Area counties, the community consortium. And we did research. uh, in, In those days, there were private practices. I had a group of nurses that would go out and do research. And we Did a survey of community consortium practitioners, I think it was about 100 people, and we gave them a test case and said, would you assist this patient, and then we asked them how many of you have assisted people in your practice and that number was 54% and that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in that article.
2: I, I, remember a, I remember a New England Journal of Medicine article many years ago. I think it was when I was uh, researching Choices in Healing from MIT Press, uh, where um, uh, where a really distinguished uh, uh, a physician said that it was precisely the ability of medicine to help people live high quality lives for longer periods of time. That meant that at the end, sometimes they would suffer more yeah. because they had been, you know, they'd, they'd been kept alive um. in ways that when the end came, there, there was the possibility that it was going to be more difficult. And therefore, this person argued, there was an ethical obligation to help people, uh, you know, end their lives precisely because Uh, medicine had enabled them to live longer. Now, I don't know whether that was just one point of view or whether not, but it stands out in my memory because the argument was such an interesting one. You help people live longer. It gets more complicated at the end. You should be able to help them depart.
3: Well, in view of what you said about being radical and wanting more than just Mm -hmm. a six-month lifespan to allow people to have that choice, certainly... As I age, you know, dementia is something I I really fear I've had um, parents and step parents all became demented and institutionalized at the end of their life. And it's no thank you, you know, <laughs> but unfortunately, that's not included in the uh, opportunity at this point in time.
2: No, well, I know. And and those are the fundamental questions. I'm so glad we're talking about this because those are the fundamental questions that people with any disease, cancer or anything else face, whether it's cancer or dementia or something else. Do I follow the law here, which we'd all like to follow? Or uh, do I believe with John Stuart Mill on a fundamental principle of English jurisprudence, which Mm -hmm. is that we have the right to decide what we do with our own bodies? It's a very fundamental question.
3: We probably don't want to go there with the current Supreme Court, you know? <laughs> well uh,
2: probably not. <laughs> probably not. So I want to come back to the cannabis question again, because as you've said, you think the real medicine is uh, is the the whole plant, and you make a cogent case for that. Um, but you go into uh, if you're in a state that permits the sale of cannabis, you go into a cannabis store and there are 50 different varieties. So if a patient asks you, how do I choose among all these varieties, by the way, many of which are not the original uh, sort of organic uh, cannabis plant, they've been you know, evolved in different directions. So how do you, uh, how do you uh, guide a patient who's trying to figure out which variety of the whole plant to use?
3: Yeah. So my husband, as you know, Clint Werner wrote the book Marijuana Gateway to Health, How Cannabis Protects Us from Cancer and Alzheimer's. And Mm -hmm. when he hears me uh, telling patients when I do clinic from right here in my living room and he's back there in the end of the house, telling them, go to the dispensary, ask the bud tender what works. He said, honey, stop telling people that that you sound like an idiot. You're asking them to ask people that don't even have a college. I said, "Well, what? I don't know what's in the dispensary, and I don't know what's works." So a few years ago, two PharmD graduates from UCSF came to me and said, "What would you think if we opened a dispensary?" And I said, "Yes, that would be great to have pharmacists running a dispensary." Well, they came back a year later and said it cost a million dollars down. So instead, we've opened a cannabis concierge service platform and uh, so they it used to be called med1rx and they've changed it because med1 was the name of a bigger company and people got confused i think they're now calling it b heracles heracles be heracles i for years they've been trying to get me to be a paid uh, consultant to the company but they haven't figured out the legal aspects of that. So I have no financial input or, uh, you know, gain from mentioning their name, but I do refer patients to them. And my patients, particularly older folks who don't really want to go to a dispensary and don't want to be overwhelmed by all those choices, really enjoy working with Matt, uh, who's the pharmacist who runs that show. And, you know, he generally Recommends a tincture that he thinks would be best after talking to the patient about what it is they're trying to treat, what other medications they're on that might interact with whatever he's going to recommend, and sometimes can even facilitate having uh, the product delivered so that the patient skips the dispensary uh, altogether. So, you know, other than saying go to the dispensary and ask the bud tender. Uh, I now have an option to refer people to this service, which should be more widespread and available. There are some states where cannabis is legal as medicine that the dispensaries do have pharmacists there on site to help with that situation. But the true answer to the question is we don't know because nobody studied all those strains for particular indications. So, you know, that's why I say, well, those people are on the front line, those bud tenders, and they must know that the patient came back or the person came back Is that this didn't help me at all for sleep or nausea. This did. So maybe they put two and two together and can help inform another patient. But meanwhile, I like working with the PharmDs who seem to be more credible, perhaps.
2: I love the phrase bud tender. I'd never heard that oh, before. Oh yeah, that's what
3: they're called. Yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, Steve Heilig again says, most hospice patients I've seen who have asked for assistance in dying don't actually use it. That's a key point. They just want the assurance.
3: Yeah,
2: uh, I've come to believe it actually extends life more often than not. Ironic, question mark. Uh, yeah, I think that's really interesting.
3: Well, no, it's very similar to the studies that have shown, for example, in lung cancer and other cancers that patients who have uh, earlier uh, involvement of palliative care teams uh, actually survive longer too. We think of palliative care as hospice, and that if we're sent there, that's the end of the line, and we're not going to do anything else. Well, those people who get consulted uh, by palliative care uh, physicians actually do survive longer. Ironically,
2: yes, I, I find that a fascinating finding, and I'm familiar with it. That people who Uh, at a certain point, decide to stop active treatment and go uh, on palliative care, uh, uh, often live longer. I I find that absolutely fascinating. And it's also fascinating, as you know, that some places are now beginning to integrate palliative care and active treatment so that you can be in palliative care and continue active treatment. Uh, You know, it's very
3: interesting. You can be in palliative care, but not in hospice.
2: Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, Here's a very interesting question that's worth uh, 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 discussing. What about Rick Simpson oil? Now, that's a really interesting question because I know how you're going to respond to that, but I want everybody to hear.
3: Yeah, well, I like to call it full extract extract cannabis oil as opposed to assigning it a name uh, of a person. Uh, And again, this is a highly concentrated oil of cannabis that patients think might cure their cancer. And I have not seen evidence that it has that impact. And in fact, the directions are to increase the dosage to the point where the amount of THC that a patient is consuming is is quite huge. And I've seen people that can't get out of bed and don't eat anymore because they're trying to follow this protocol, which is, you know, not something that I generally believe in at all. And I dissuade people from using it. Mm -hmm. One other thing to note is that cannabis, you know, is a medicine and like other medicines, it's broken down in the liver and its components can also impact the enzyme system in the liver that breaks down other medications pharmaceuticals for example so particularly cbd inhibits the enzymes in the liver that break down pharmaceuticals so people taking highly concentrated full extract cannabis oil either high in thc or cbd need to be very careful If they take pharmaceuticals, because especially if it's a high CBD product, that will inhibit the enzymes in the liver that metabolize pharmaceuticals, allowing them to build up in the bloodstream and become more toxic.
2: Yeah, these are critical questions, and I wish everybody could hear you, Donald. I just because (laughs) Uh here's the thing, you know, people think I mean, on the at the one end of the spectrum. There are the things that we can say these seven healing practices are going to make you healthier and live longer, uh, better quality of life, and they may extend life as well. Uh, and we can say to people, guess what? There are actually studies that show that palliative care sometimes extends life as well. But then we get to cannabis and we get to CBD and we get to, well, which THC products. Or which whole plant products are the best? And you, as the leading experts, say we don't actually know. And the point is that, that the complementary therapies are a frontier of treatment, just like conventional therapies. And the information keeps going forward. So there is immense subtlety to many of these questions.
3: Yeah, well, the cannabis question, the reason that we don't know, I, I might add, is because we the, the barriers to studying the yeah. therapeutic benefits of cannabis are huge. The only legal source of cannabis for research in the country used to be the National Institute on Drug Abuse, NIDA. And as Alan Leshner, the former head of NIDA told me, we are the National Institute on Drug Abuse, not for drug abuse. So NIDA has a congressional mandate, that they can only study substances of abuse as substances of abuse. So if you wanna look at the potential therapeutic benefit of the plant, you must use NIDA cannabis up until very recently, but they cannot fund such a study. So they spend $150 million a year looking at the harmful effects of cannabis, of which they can find really very few, But they cannot fund research to look at the potential benefit.
2: Yeah, it's extraordinary.
3: That's why there's such an absence of evidence.
2: We have a wonderful question from from Deborah. This is how, how important these questions are. She says, I will be starting immunotherapy next Friday. And just read that cannabis use for symptoms is contraindicated during treatment because of immune checkpoint inhibitors. Most articles I read pointed to a study in 2020, though. So I am hoping this is not really the case. I am very worried because my use of cannabis is the only way I know to keep my appetite up and my sleep sound. So that's a very interesting question.
3: So the data that uh, she's uh, quoting and that's driving this discussion it comes from Israel. Uh, Israel has been really at the forefront of observational research because any patient getting medical cannabis in Israel gets a license. And that license allows the government, I guess, or the investigators to survey the patients and follow their outcomes. So what they found, the first report was that patients using cannabis with immunotherapy compared to patients getting immunotherapy and not using cannabis, the patients using cannabis had less um, positive outcomes of the immunotherapy but there was no difference in survival. And that was followed by another study, 68 patients getting immunotherapy compared to 34 getting immunotherapy and using cannabis. And again, this is not randomized placebo control. This is just observational. So this study was amazing in the difference in that the patients using cannabis with their immunotherapy had a much shorter duration of the response to immunotherapy and had two years shorter survival, six months survival compared to two and a half years. And I said, how is that possible? So I looked very carefully at the differences in those two groups because it wasn't randomized. And there was a statistically significant difference in that the patients not using cannabis we're getting immunotherapy as first line treatment significantly more frequently than the patients using cannabis who are getting it as second or third line treatment so perhaps it was the line of therapy that was dictating the worse outcome and not the cannabis however since we don't know that i often inform my patients starting immunotherapy about these results and ask them to make their own decision
2: and that leads us to uh, an observation of yours that I quote so often, Donald, um, about um, how to evaluate uh, complementary therapies where what we say at best may be scientific science informed, but it's not scientifically demonstrated. And you have this wonderful line, which I haven't heard others use, which is, if I say it correctly, The lower the evidence of harm, the lower the burden of proof. Now, do I have that right?
3: Yeah, so it's actually something I saw from Andrew Weil. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. That says that the, the degree of evidence should be directly proportional to the potential for the intervention to do harm. So if I say I'm going to give you this new chemotherapy and your hair is going to fall out, you're going to vomit for three days and your bone marrow is going to be suppressed. You're going to say, "Show me the evidence that it's going to benefit me," but if I'm going to tell you to eat more blueberries and broccoli and get a massage twice a month, you know how much evidence do we really need for that?
2: Right, and let's let's pile on top of that Mm -hmm. the power of the placebo effect. Mm -hmm. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, so uh, two things there. There a paper I haven't yet read. a placebo was given to patients with cancer fatigue and they were told this is a placebo. And in one week, their fatigue was improved. A study that I'm putting in my presentation next week on the pain study was uh, patients with pain got placebo or CBD and they were told it was placebo or it was CBD. So the placebo recipients who were told that they got CBD had more pain relief than the people taking CBD. And that's expectancy. And uh, if the placebo effect, if placebo, you know, if it works, how can we argue with it?
2: Well, it's so strange that we call things placebo because that suggests that it's kind of a fake effect, you know. But if we think of it as your innate healing ability uh, when you have an intervention that somehow, even if it's called placebo, uh, makes you feel better, right? There's this incredibly powerful innate human healing ability that is released.
3: It's the mind-body connection, right? Exactly. Exactly.
2: And if we think about pharmaceuticals or conventional care, They have immense placebo effect. I mean, here you have an authority telling you this is what is really going to help you. Uh, You know, the the placebo power of conventional therapy is at least as great as the placebo power of complementary therapy.
3: Yeah, I think antibiotics and anti-cancer agents are probably not placebo. though. I think they might work. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. That would be an interesting question to, to follow up. So, um, uh, we have Julia Roland on the line here. Oh. Uh, she's uh, just telling us that Steve Heilig's link doesn't work. Hi, Julia. It's such a pioneer of, uh, of, uh, complementary therapy research. I remember Julia, uh, telling me that of all the different uh, therapies that have been researched on the complementary side, that exercise was the single one for which there was the most evidence. Do you, Does that resonate for you?
3: Sure. Yeah, so I'm a big believer in the American Institute for Cancer Research, World Cancer Research Fund recommendations for reducing the risk of cancer. Number 10 says for cancer survivors, follow the nine guidelines above. And number one is to be a healthy weight. Mm -hmm. Uh, We now believe that 40% of all cancer in the United States is related to overweight or obesity. And the second one is to be, it says, currently it says move more, sit less, which I think is less prescriptive than the 2007 guideline, which said be physically active for 30 minutes each day. And I think the evidence is really quite clear that physical activity decreases the risk of breast, colon, and prostate cancer, and that patients with a number of cancers, including those three plus also pancreatic cancer who are physically active do much better with regards to survival than people who are not physically active. And we also know that patients would like to hear about physical activity or be told to be more physically active by their oncologists. And even though 50% of oncologists believe that that's a good thing to do, very few actually do it because they don't have time. You know, they're treating the cancer and not the patient living with cancer. Mm -hmm. A recent study came out and showed that people who are sedentary and people have become much more sedentary since the pandemic because they're in their house, uh, who do not, exercise for 150 minutes a week have a fivefold greater risk of death than people who are physically active, who exercise 150 minutes a week, and who are not sedentary. You're listening to a
0: TNS Conversation with Dr. Donald Abrams and host Michael Lerner.
2: That's only 20 minutes a day
3: yeah, or thirty minutes five times a day de- right. week. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's whatever. But that's fivefold increased risk of death is pretty s- profound. Mm-hmm. So I think people need to get out and exercise and move, and that's absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. And I believe it should be aerobic, so something that gets your heart rate up and in fact makes you sweat, as well as resistance. because so many cancers like to go to bone, And I think resistance exercise not only keeps the muscles toned, but the bones mineralized. And then I discovered late in life the benefits of yoga, which is strength, flexibility, and balance. And those are all things that we need uh, as we grow older. But in addition, I always say Jewish boys can't meditate. But at the end of a 60 or 90-minute yoga class when we do shavasana, The corpse pose and they say, you can come back now. I feel like I've gone someplace. So for me, yoga is a good mind-body intervention, as well as strength, flexibility, and balance.
2: Uh, Laura Pohl, uh, you have been listening to this. You have a wealth of uh, experience. Uh, Any reflections on what uh, Donald has been telling us?
4: Well, I'm taking furious notes because every time I hear Donald speak, he tells me something that I know we need to put um, in cancer choices. Um, Yeah, I was just wondering because I know over the years, um, and this is a a little bit apart from what we've been talking about, but uh, Donald had some influence with um, SIO and other integrative oncology um, groups in talking about what we we used to call the CAM therapies, complementary and alternative medicine. And then Donald talks a little bit more, since we're talking about integrative oncology, the distinction between is it CAM or are we talking about complementary uh, therapies? And I I wonder if Donald might want to speak a little bit to that distinction since (laughs) that's a huge part of what we're trying to impart to people through cancer choices great point wow. yeah.
3: yeah, so cam cam was a lovely acronym, easy to say, very popular twenty years ago, but something cannot really be complementary and alternative at the same time because complementary means we're doing it in conjunction with conventional cancer care, and alternative means we're doing it instead of so i I think cam is a lovely acronym, but it's internally self-contradictory. So what integrative medicine is, is integrating complementary and conventional and not using the alternative word at all. I mean, I think 5% of the people I see in my practice are looking for alternatives to conventional cancer care. And I say, I don't have any magic bullet in this drawer when I used to work in my office next to a a dresser that had drawers. I said, you know, if I had something that was alternative that worked, we'd be using it. I say, I'm an oncologist for 39 years and I know what I do can have some benefit. And there's nothing out there that's truly alternative. And I see people again with the full extract cannabis oil, with intravenous Vitamin C with mistletoe, looking for alternative therapies. That you know, it's I caution them that it's a waste of time, in my opinion. Those people that go down to Mexico or go to Switzerland for these clinics where they offer all sorts of intravenous therapies, you know, I just haven't seen them work from my perspective or vantage point. So, what we do in integrative medicine is integrate complementary and conventional. And thank you for mentioning SIO. I did want to bring up the Society for Integrative Oncology, especially uh, Julia Rowland on the call from the Smith Center and working with the American Society of Clinical Oncology, which is our conventional oncology group. Uh, What we're doing now is the Society for Integrative Oncology is mainstreaming by working together with the American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO, to develop guidelines. And Julia asked me to participate in her committee, which was looking for symptom management. Uh, Actually, I wound up leaving that committee because ASCO asked me to be on a committee making guidelines for cannabis use in cancer patients, uh, updating their previous guidelines, saying that the cannabis-based medicines should only be used in refractory nausea and vomiting, and that there's not enough evidence to support the use of marijuana in the situation. So hopefully, as we're working on new guidelines, we might move that one a little bit forward. And the reason I point out the ASCO-SIO uh, interaction is that the Society for Integrative Oncology, now 20-plus years old, is collaborating with other organizations to help bring integrative cancer care uh, into uh, the spotlight a little bit more. Yeah, and which that, is critical, that's important.
2: Which is critically important because the uh, ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology is the establishment oncology community. And the fact that the Society for Integrative Oncology, which Donald also headed at one point, if I remember correctly.
3: Uh, yeah, 2010.
2: <laughs> uh, 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 really is sort of the, uh, the group that is interacting with the the mainstream. So these are important, important developments. But I think it's also important to say that the Society for Integrative Oncology uh, has become quite mainstream in a good way, uh, you know, getting leadership from people at uh, Sloan Kettering and elsewhere. And so its approach to integrative uh, therapies is uh, is quite conservative, I think it's fair to say. So it seems to me there continues to be a need uh, for many people who may also play a role in that part to continue to push the envelope further in the exploration of the new frontiers, which go on forever, of, of integrative care.
3: Yeah, no, you are correct that the Society for Integrative Oncology is a bit conservative and very research-oriented and research evidence-based. And, you know, that evidence-informed is a little gentler and a little more uh, useful for patients to have evidence-informed data as opposed to hard evidence-based from randomized placebo-controlled clinical trials.
2: I'm going to ask Nancy Hepp to come back on, and while she does that, I'm going to read Uh, a, A note from Julia Rowland, the history at the NIH National Institute of Health is that they first established an Office of Alternative Medicine, which then became the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine, which is now referred to as the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health. So it's good to have that. Nancy, as you have listened to this as the person who Really has done a heroic job of getting cancerchoices.org up and uh, both lead researcher and uh, the uh, uh, just the manager of the whole process. Any reflections on uh, what you've heard Donald say?
5: I, I think that yes there's there's a spotlight on the evidence base but then the the broadening as Laura mentioned earlier let's look at what all of the different types of evidence that are available we we want to know if there's good solid clinical based evidence but we expand that because we know there are other types of evidence and people with cancer need to know all
2: of the options that are available. Mm -hmm. Nancy, I'm glad you said that because our colleague, Wayne Jonas, who's a uh, Donald knows well, who's been another pioneer of the field. He talks about Donald, the house of evidence uh, saying, rather than look at randomized controlled trials as the single gold standard, they're not always the most appropriate standard. Do you agree with that? Do you see it as a house of evidence?
3: Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. There's there's a hierarchy of what you know when. Because I've been on that committee from the National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine that wrote the health effects of cannabis and cannabinoids, and I learned a lot about how we rank evidence. And again, the randomized, double-blind, placebo control is at the top, followed by this, that, case studies, observational studies. I mean, the observational study from Israel that suggested that cannabis should not be used in patients getting immunotherapy is an example of why that might not be correct. You know, maybe it's not the cannabis. Maybe it's the fact that those people who use cannabis were getting the immunotherapy as second or third line evidence. So you have to be a little bit cautious. And again, I am not demanding evidence-based. I like evidence-informed. I did want to say one thing about the website or the the booklets. I don't know if we're going to talk about the booklets. Please go ahead. But I did want to, Nancy, maybe you can talk about some of the handbooks or demonstrate the handbook.
5: Certainly. Let me pull them up. So we have a a collection, and it is growing in that we are planning many more of integrative cancer care handbooks. And we uh, have brought forward from Beyond Conventional Cancer Therapies, which was our previous iteration, uh, these four handbooks that go in depth on what do we know about what promotes um, healing and wellness and better outcomes among breast cancer, colorectal cancer, ovarian cancer, and prostate cancer. And uh, these are extensive. The breast cancer one is I think 118 pages long. So they're not for the faint of heart. We will be redoing them so that we will have that overview at a glance for people who that's all they can take in right now. And we will also be looking at various timestamps. So throughout your cancer experience, from the moment you hear the words, you have cancer up until the very end of your life? What do we know is beneficial? What do we know is beneficial while you're in active treatment? What do we know is beneficial while you're in remission and so on? So we will be, Uh, portraying things in a way that we think will be more meaningful for people. But in the meantime, these uh, handbooks are available for people. We also have handbooks specific to certain types of treatment. For example, um, the surgery handbook goes into great detail of what you can do as you're preparing for surgery to lead to better outcomes. What should you be doing on your surgery day? After surgery, what can you be doing and what can you be taking to improve your outcomes? And so on.
2: Thank you, Nancy. Donald, uh, this has been extraordinarily beneficial. Any uh, final thoughts and reflections on apologizing for my tech issues?
3: Uh, No, I just want to congratulate you on this new website. It's really, I think, a valuable resource, not only for people living with cancer, their caregivers, but also for uh, professionals, healthcare professionals to, again, as we started out saying, to make integrative oncology more accessible uh, to all.
1: All right. Well, it looks like we've lost Michael. I wonder if anyone would want to, anyone who's joined us on the webinar would want to ask donald any questions if you want to feel free to put those right in the chat and he's still here he can yep. uh, do some question and answers
3: and, uh, for nancy what might be the timeline for head and neck and lung cancer handbook to become available
1: That's a great question
5: so the way we are building all of our handbooks are based on the foundation of what we find when we put out the therapy reviews So we build out the therapy reviews. We're just finishing our 30th complete exhaustive review of a therapy. Once we have that information base, then we populate the handbooks. And so we we feel that 30 therapies is sort of a critical mass that we can start building the handbooks for the different cancer types. And so those can go very quickly because we already have all the information assembled from the therapy reviews. So I am hopeful that we will start having therapies, uh, summaries, and handbooks for specific cancer types by the end of this year.
4: This is Laura. Um, I remember an interesting uh, presentation you gave. It may have been on when we did the one for SIO on prostate cancer, but you were showing the difference between. What uh, physicians look for in terms of evidence and what patients look for. And I was wondering if you could contrast and compare that a little bit.
3: Yeah, so that's a slide that I used from an old study that was done in the UK, where they looked at 32 men with uh, prostate cancer and they asked them what drove them to select a particular complementary therapy. And the number one was a recommendation from friends and family, and number two was the enduring duration of that therapy, and then there was three and four, and number five was scientific evidence and so I use that you know to inform my oncology colleagues who are so evidence demanding that our patients often have a different hierarchy of evidence and You know, in those days, that was prior to social media, whatever it's called, you know, Facebook and tweets and all that, which makes you get your advice now from more than just your friends and family, but from unknown people that who knows who they are or what their motivations are. So I I think it's important for us to appreciate that patients are not necessarily going to scientific evidence as their first choice of what prompts them to use a particular complementary therapy.
4: Someone wanted to know specifically about finding an integrative oncologist in the San Francisco Bay Area, but I wonder, um, (laughs) I don't know if you'll choose to address that uh, specifically, but maybe some guidelines on helping. How do you advise people to find help in putting together an integrative cancer treatment plan.
3: Yeah. Again, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, there just aren't enough integrative oncologists to meet the demands. So, uh, you know, I think that uh, the work that you all are doing, this website, anti-cancer living, I am a paid consultant uh, to a website called WellCasa, which looks at... uh, potential interactions between supplements and pharmaceuticals and looks at, uh, you know, I've been doing some uh, videos for them on, you know, different supplements to treat different uh, aspects of living with and beyond cancer. So again, in the spirit of full disclosure, I am a paid consultant to Wellcasa, but I think they are also there, similar to the work that we're doing here, to help Make integrative cancer care more accessible to people who who want it. I always point to the uh, the four part series that Michael and I did at Commonweal years ago uh, as a real valuable resource for people that want uh, guidelines in integrative cancer care. Even though we did that, I don't even know how many years ago. I think it's still pretty relevant. People often ask me, "Do you have any updates?" and I don't think I do. I think it's still relevant, those, that four-part video series.
2: Yeah, Donald, I keep cutting in and out, and my apologies. That's okay. But I really just want to thank you so much for this extraordinary conversation. Uh, it's been wonderful. We look forward to ongoing <laughs> partnership and your wisdom as one of our advisors. And really just thank you for your extraordinary leadership in the field. My pleasure yeah kira back to you
1: so um just another reminder you know that we're going to have the recordings from the whole conversation today uh we'll, they should be finished and produced in about a couple of weeks they'll be on the cancerchoices.org website and they'll be on the new school website and on all of our media outlets soundcloud apple Podcasts, spotify and youtube um, and I think I wanted to point out that we have another event coming up uh, that will be interesting. I think to people on this webinar, this is going to be something that we just put together. It's a walkthrough of the Cancer Choices website, and that's going to be Wednesday, August third, from nine to ten thirty. You can find that on our website as well, and um, we hope to see you at the the next event. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Donald, thanks again. Extraordinary. And thanks to all who've listened in and to Nancy Hep and Laura Paul uh, and uh, Kira Epstein. Uh, thank you all. It's been extraordinary.
3: You've been
0: listening to a TNS conversation with Dr. Donald Abrams and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. Our theme music was performed by Debbie Daly. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening
5: the water I feel home. Water could kill my body. Water kill my